what triggered this bizarre behavior. Journey into the cold heart of northern darkness with Nordic crimes. That case uh, became like a scene from a horror movie. A new true crime documentary series that chilled the bone. The hunger for killing is increasing in the course of these homicides. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Nordic Crimes is a part of the Acast family. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Oh, Temujin's calling me on the phone right now. Should we put him on? Yeah, why not? Yeah, (laughs) How perfect. This is a prepaid debit call from Temujin Kensu. I know that sound all too well. Good day, Cobra. Hey, we're on the air right now. I'm on the air with the Australian wizard of podcasting. So you're you're on the air with us now. So that's actually why I said good day, Cobra. Paula said that Kalia said something about an interview today, and I was like, I'll bet that might be Jason and Jack. And so I, I got good day, Cobra, from him when he sent me a Jay. So good day, Jack. Good day, buddy. How are you? Tell me, Jim, why don't you just... Say whatever you want to say, and then I'm going to hang up on you and talk to Jack. I just want to send my best to everybody there and tell you that Jason's an amazing guy who's been fighting for us here in the States, trying to bring justice to a lot of innocent people, some on death row. And uh, I want to thank Jack again and all the listeners. and Just say God bless everybody out there, and thank you for caring. Catch you later on, Jason. All right, thank sounds you too, good. Jack. Talk to you in a little bit. All right. Hello. And welcome back to One Minute Remaining. My name is Jack Lawrence, the host and creator of this show. Today is a special episode as I sit down with a very special guest, a man who has occupied this space of the US justice system for decades. But he's no lawyer, no police officer, and certainly not a judge. In fact, his trade is the music business. Mr. Flom. Mm-hmm. How are you, sir? Oh, you know, if I was any happier, they'd have to sell fucking tickets. You know what I mean? <laughs> it Let's is. See, uh, have I done everything right here? I have no engineer with me. So that, I, it's, sure I mean, I it did. sounds phenomenal to me. You're coming through quite oh. rich and beautiful there, sir. Isn't that fantastic? It okay, is good. Indeed. Jason Flom is an American music industry executive who's had quite an incredible career, to say the least. He has been at the helm of some of the biggest record companies in the business, Atlantic Records, Virgin Records, Capital Music Group, uh, and a whole list of other achievements in this space and working with some of the biggest artists in the business. In 2008, he relaunched his own Lava Records label, where he remains today. However, it's not this incredible career in the music business that we're here to talk about, because as well as all of this, Jason has also been fighting the US legal system since the early 90s. 
1993, he joined the board of Families Against Mandatory Minimums off the back of an experience that he talks us through shortly. Soon after that, he became a founding member of the now famous Innocence Project. As part of his work in this space, in 2016, Jason launched the Wrongful Conviction podcast and has been the driving force behind a number of exonerations and pardons, some of which he talks about in our chat. Now, I have obviously known about Jason for some time, but it's when I started chatting with Temujin Kenzu, the man whose story we've been covering recently on OMR, that we were formally introduced. And obviously, I had to get him on the show for a chat. Your background, obviously, is in the music industry. Now, I know how you got into this, but I'd love you to tell the story for us for probably your 400th time of how you actually got into dealing with the wrongfully incarcerated um, individuals that you ha- uh, you deal with. Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. You know, the, the truth is that how I got into this as a lifelong music uh, executive, which I've been since I was 18, since I failed at playing the guitar for a living. So um, I decided to go and try to help other people become rock stars. In fact, my very first platinum record was an uh, Australian band you've probably heard of called ACDC. Yeah, Akadaka. So, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, it was Highway to Hell, but uh, for an ad that I designed for them that said the Highway to Hell is paved with platinum. And it had a a platinum highway in hell at the end. It's quite, uh, quite a good ad if I say so myself, but anyway, um, and that was when I was still uh, a teenager. So it was, uh, you know, really an incredible experience. I got to meet the guys and they signed it for me. I have it on my wall in the house here now, but anyway, you know, what happened was it's quite serendipitous actually when I was 32 years old, which I think is about the time a lot of people sort of find, their purpose in life. Right? Yeah. I'm not a religious person. I'm, I sometimes am an atheist with a calling. But anyway, um, what happened was this particular day, I was on my way, uh, getting in a taxi to go, I think play tennis or something. But anyway, I wanted to buy the New York Times and it was sold out. So I bought the New York Post, which is not a paper that I ever recommend anybody to buy. <laughs> but anyway, um, it's um, sort of a right wing rag here in the United States. But so I picked it up because obviously I was meant to. And there was a story in the paper about a kid who was serving 15 to life for a nonviolent first offense cocaine possession charge in a maximum security prison in New York State. And I know people are probably listening and going, oh, no, no, he made a mistake. He couldn't have just said what he said. But yes, it was a nonviolent first offense, 15 years to life, mandatory 15 years before he was eligible for parole. And I just couldn't believe what I was reading. His mother had been trying to get clemency for him um, and had had been turned down in spite of the fact that she had gotten some very high profile support. And that's why it had made the newspaper. So this kid's name was Stephen Lennon. He was 32 years old at the time. I was 32. He had been in prison for eight years. I had been sober for almost eight years because I had gone to rehab. And I recognized that the reason for that was the color of my skin and the zip code that I was raised in. And so I just thought, geez, that could have been me, you know? And so I couldn't let this go. I had to do something about it. And so I called his mother because her name was in the article and I offered to send what little money I had back then. And she graciously declined because she said there was no point because there were no more appeals left and, you know, hope was basically lost. And so I decided to try to see if I could do something about it anyway, not knowing anything about anything. I still had a mullet back then, just to give you an idea. <laughs> so this is a while ago, 30 years ago. So the only criminal defense lawyer I knew at the time was a guy named Bob Kalina. Bob represented two of the artists I had signed, Skid Row and Stone Temple Pilots. And for those of members of your audience who are of a certain age, you'll remember those bands, but they were getting arrested 
frequently. Let's just say that. And so I had Bob on speed dial. So I asked him if he could help with this case. He said it was hopeless, but he agreed as a favor to me, ultimately, to take the case pro bono. And he found a loophole. And six months later or so, we ended up in a courtroom in Malone, New York, which is up by the Canadian border. And they brought this kid, Stephen, in in shackles. Um, You know, like he's... Some sort of serial killer. Exactly. Yeah. Legs chained together, hands chained to his waist. I'm like, what is this? A bad movie? This is a nonviolent first offender, cocaine possessor. Um, It wasn't a small amount of cocaine, but he also wasn't Scarface. You know what I mean? So it's (laughs) like, anyway, the judge looked like Ted Forsyth. If you remember that actor, the old guy with white hair, I was like, this is not going to go our way. But the arguments went back and forth. I was sitting there holding Stephen's mother's hand when the judge banged the gavel down and granted the motion and Stephen was um, released soon after that. And I just thought, Oh my God, I have a superpower. And if I have this superpower, then I'm going to use it. And so, you know, that was not an actual innocence case. That was a mandatory sentencing case. But soon after that, I joined the board. I became the first board member of families against mandatory minimums. I'd read a story about their work in Rolling Stone magazine. And then, um, not too long after that, I saw something on TV about a death penalty case because you know, in America, we still have the death penalty. And that probably mm-hmm. surprises some in your audience because it's like, how the fuck do we still have the death penalty when every other Western or even civilized country has abolished it, you know, generations ago? But anyway, um, we do. And so there was a story on TV about an innocent guy who was scheduled to be executed. And the Innocence Project, which was a new organization back then, had come along and with a microscope and you know, some brilliant lawyering and maneuvering. They had proven that the DNA that this guy was actually innocent. And instead of being executed, he was free. And I was like, oh my God, that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. I got to get involved. So that's what led me to basically just go down there and volunteer my services. Now, now, of course, we have thousands of people trying to volunteer that we can't accommodate. But back then, it was basically the two founders, Barry Sheck and Peter Neufeld, in a little office with a briefcase, a microscope, a phone, and a dream. And I was like, I'm helping you. Whatever you guys need and more, I'm going to do it. Want me to raise money? What do you need me to do? I'll do it. So I became the first board member there as well. And it's been, uh, this has been a huge part of my life ever since. And of course, that led me to starting my podcast, Wrongful Conviction, back in 2016. We've just crossed 50 million uh, listens. So welcome back to Wrongful Conviction. I got to say, I'm flabbergasted at what we're about to do today. It's just nuts. I mean, this case, the case of Temujin Kenzu, is like a masterclass in the failing. If you haven't heard it yet, you're late. Get on it. Go to your app right now. Google up Wrongful it follow, Podcast. Start listening, yeah. start binging. It is a brilliant podcast. And there's just so, I mean, the stories sometimes almost seem too insane to be true. I mean, I feel like I, I've heard it all and then I hear another person's story and it just blows my mind even further. I mean, you know, I don't think people truly understand. It's 2023 and there are still thousands of people incarcerated in the United States wrongfully convicted. And as you said, not only that, there's also people in prison still with insane sentences for, you know, seemingly minor crimes. A guy I talked to, David Talley, a hundred year sentence because he essentially ran from the cops, didn't kill anyone, didn't hurt anyone. He he hit a couple of police cars and he was charged with um, assault with a deadly weapon, 30 year maximum on those. It's crazy. You go, how is this still happening? Yeah, I have the same reaction as you do, which is how is this still happening? And how is it that each week we record this podcast? And I think I've 
and I'm like, okay, now I finally heard everything. And mm-hmm. then the next one comes up and I'm like, whoops, Jesus Christ, I've got to adjust my already crazy standards already because some of these stories and Temujin, of course, sticks out among them mm-hmm. are so insane. But you're quite right to point out the sentencing problems in America because we have these insane laws, even in states like California, which you wouldn't necessarily think, right, where there are cases in California where people are serving 25 years to life for stealing a pair of socks. As the guy said, they weren't even, they didn't even have stripes on them. You know, this was just a guy who was in a mall waiting for his girlfriend or whatever, or his wife or something, whoever he's waiting for, and was bored and walked into a store and picked up a pair of socks and walked out. But it was his third strike. You know, we've got cases, we've actually just finally resolved a case uh, that I was peripherally involved in um, with a, a trans. A woman named Alejandra Nolkemper, um, who was convicted of throwing a brick through the window of a church. And they falsified the time that this occurred. It was an unoccupied church. It was nighttime. But they changed it to daytime, so there would have been somebody there. So then they could charge with a different type of crime. And this was someone who had grown up on the streets and naturally had a couple of priors as a result. And so this was enough to trigger, again, a 25-to-life sentence. And it's just... These are not isolated stories. This is like sort of, you know, you pointed out that that crazy story uh, that you just did. I mean, I was involved in a case we resolved. I was able to get clemency, actually, in Virginia for a guy named Lenny Singleton back in 2000, I don't know, 18 or something. And he was a guy who had stolen a little over $500 in a series of dash and grab robberies, which is basically a robbery where you're in the store and you wait for the cash registered to open you reach in you pull the money and you run out the door he walked out the door because he said he actually wanted to get arrested because he was a guy who was a navy veteran who had terrible ptsd and got addicted to crack cocaine so he was just taking this money to support his habit he didn't carry a weapon he never hurt anybody he never touched anybody never pushed anybody out of the way he just would take this money and so in these this one week, he stole a little over $500 and was sentenced to two life sentences plus 100 years. Today, most people serving two life sentences plus 110 years ever get to experience. But today, 51-year-old Lenny Singleton walked out of this correctional center here in Chesapeake. The anger over the years uh, certainly has dissipated, but I was never angry at the judge, uh, nor was I angry at the criminal justice system, although I've learned so much about it, and they're all flawed. He hugged Jason Flom and John Cogshell, two men who saw the injustice in Lenny's sentence and fought for his freedom. And it's like, you know, this is what we do in America. I just don't get that whole mentality around two life sentences plus 100 years. What What are we doing there? Well, this is a very uniquely, I think, American thing. Like what, you know, we did at that same sort of fell swoop there, I was able to also secure a clemency for another young guy named Travion Blount. This kid was 15 when he participated in a robbery and he was guilty and he carried a gun. He didn't shoot anybody, didn't hurt anybody, but he did carry a gun. But he was 15. And because he refused to take a plea, right, because he went with two or three older kids and they went to go rob this pot dealer. When they got to the house, they were a dozen people at the house, I guess, who's having a little party or something. So they robbed everybody, right? Dumb crime. You know, you rob 12 people in your own neighborhood and no one's going to recognize you. Pretty dumb. <laughs> but witnesses. these older kids, so the prosecutors offered them a plea of 11 years and the other guys were smart. They took the plea. And even though Travion's lawyer told him to take the plea, I guess as a 15-year-old kid, you know, he was in 
probably sounded like an awful long time. So he decided to roll the dice and go to court. He was sentenced to six life terms plus a hundred years. Now, what the fuck is that? Right? Like you said, what the fuck is even that? Like, so does that mean you die and come? Yeah, back when you to life? just in case you re, you reincarnated, you're coming back here and we're gonna put you in prison again. I mean, what? Honestly, it yeah, makes yeah. I mean, no if you come sense. back to life that many times, I would actually maybe start becoming religious if I saw somebody <laughs> come back to life that many times. New at five thirty, a Norfolk man sentenced to spend the rest of his life locked up is counting on a pardon from Governor Bob McDonald. Every day for 13 years, Travion Blunt fought for this moment to hug his family outside of prison walls. Today, he's now a free man. Trey, say hey to everybody. Hey to all your family. You don't give somebody six consecutive life terms and 118 years for stealing $75, three joints, and two cell phones and physically hurting no one. Let's talk about, you know, uh, these these mandatory minimums. I mean, because you look at somewhere like Florida where this case I'm talking about, this David Talley 100-year sentence, they've now got an 85% mandatory sentencing when you you, know, you have to serve at least minimum of 85% of your uh, sentence. And, and Florida has also pretty much, they've done away with the whole parole system, which, I, again, I don't understand. I'm like, surely, yes, I'm not saying people shouldn't go to prison, but if they're going to go to prison and change their lives... You know, surely that's the whole purpose. Well, at some point, this country of ours, um, where I would say we have um, over 2 million people in prison here mm. um, and 11 million people that cycle in and out of jails and prisons in America in a given year, it wasn't always like this. It's up seven or eight hundred percent over the past couple of generations mm. because of the war on drugs. We have a podcast about that actually called The War on Drugs. So if you get a chance, check that out. It's really a fascinating um, podcast, I think. But that being said, um, we have become addicted to this incarceration um, business, right? It's a business. It's a big, big business. Over $100 billion a year spent on this nonsense, right? And so we could safely release 80 or 90% of the people in prison in America today that have no increase in crime. But everybody's making money. You know, it's like yeah. there's, think about all the contractors and all the people and all the powerful unions that are involved and it, it makes money. Uh, so, you know, and people worry about private prisons and private prisons are a problem, but only about 7% of prisons in America are private, which is 7% too much, by yeah. the way. Like private prisons, those two words should never well, no, be. Because the they're same just for profit. Together. I mean, in private prison is for profit. It's about, you know, the, so spending the least the, money and making the most. But so are the other prisons. They're all for profit. And yeah, the fact right. is that the private prisons are, you know, for many reasons are among the worst. You pointed out the fact that they are just purely for profit. They, they don't hide it, right? The other ones, you know, at least pretend, but they're. They're no better. So what happened is at some point as a country, we went from a country that was had some intentions of helping people when they went to prison to turn their lives around and to become, you know, productive citizens on the way out. We went to a country where prisons are designed now purely for punishment, um, where for some reason we're an extremely vindictive country um, and we like to take out our whatever our frustrations are on people who are the, you know, the most vulnerable amongst us. You see it now with the persecution of the trans community and the LGBTQ and, you know, ultimately it's, well, it's always been the case with minority groups here. You know, this is not the only country like that, but I think we're, you know, we stand out in terms of the way 
we behave towards marginalized groups and there's no more marginalized groups than people who are underrepresented and who over incarcerated because of the color of their skin or the accident of their birth being born into an area where they're over policed and where they lack opportunities. And so, you know, it, it's all wrong and we need to turn it around. And what happened was uh, concurrent with this um, move towards almost purely punitive incarceration, politicians found that they could get votes by scaring people with this tough on crime or war on whatever the hell they want to call it, you know, crime wave rhetoric, right? Yeah. None of which is true. What happened was that politicians found that these scare attacks were effective in getting votes. They did then was start to propose these mandatory sentencing laws very cynically, right? I don't think they really believed that they would make any difference, but mm. they, it was just pandering. And it was found to be, in many cases, an effective way of getting votes. So they would then, it was like a race. It became like an arms race who can pass tougher and tougher sentences with no consideration of what this would mean yeah. to American citizens who would be subjected to them whatsoever. And, you know, a lot of the people serving mandatory sentences, like the guy that's, that I started this conversation with, Stephen Lennon, were just people who were drug users or, or minor drug dealers, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, there are still people serving life in prison in America for weed. Yeah. And it's legal in most of America now. So it's like, this is just how backwards we are. And again, check out the War on Drugs podcast. Do it now. Just put it on your phone because you it it will... We don't have time to get into it the way they get into it, nor am I as, as you know, as clever as the people who hosted it. You won't believe what you hear. Because don't forget, like, one of the things about the war on drugs is that they don't need to find any drugs. All they need is someone to go, yep, I bought the drugs from her or him. And they come to search your house. There's no drugs. There's no scales. There's no money. There's no Swiss bank accounts. There's no this. There's no that. And they go, yeah, but the other guy said you did it. So therefore, you're charged with conspiracy. And now you have to prove a negative. And it's like, but there are people in this very real situation. It sounds like Kafka-esque or like some other weird nightmare, but it, it actually goes on day in and day out in America. And so it's been my mission for the past 30 years to, to, try, to try to fix this as best I can. And I'm going to keep doing it as long as I have any breath left in my body because it's got to be done. And, you know, I can very easily see again how this could happen to me or almost anyone. Oh, totally. I always say that every single man and woman I speak with incarcerated, literally, I believe, we, we, you know, we've all been one mistake away from it being incarcerated. I mean, just pure luck. I mean, when I was younger, I made some very stupid decisions and it was pure just dumb luck. You know, Brian Stevenson, the great Brian Stevenson says that I believe everyone's better than the worst thing they've ever done. 100%. And yeah. And so I think when people think about people who are incarcerated, whether they're in Australia or here or anywhere else, I would ask that they just stop and consider that for a second, which is that how would you like to be judged forever because of uh, the worst thing that you've ever done and you just happen to be caught whereas you know and that's why it's so difficult like there's real moral and ethical considerations i was speaking to a district attorney today who is um facing some you know criticism because she uh, charged a young kid who was convicted of drunk driving and hurt somebody badly um i'm not even sure if the person was was killed i don't know the whole details of the case but was a young teenager but what the, the what the blowback is about is that the other side is saying that that kid should have been charged as an adult 
and sentenced to a long time in prison. And of course, if you drunk drive and you hit somebody, you know, we there's consequences yeah, for that course. action. But I would bet that everyone on that jury when they were kids did the same thing because when we're young and stupid we do young and stupid things yep and i know that i did that and it's just by luck by dumb luck that i never got into an accident or hit somebody or hurt somebody or of course myself and so it's also points out another question right which is that in america we have this very bizarre system where they can try children as adults and it's like you know, we get used to this here, but it's like, what what the fuck are you talking about? Children are not adults. That's not what they are. How do you say that? Paul Gingrich was only 12 when he pleaded guilty to conspiracy to commit murder. Gingrich is believed to be the youngest person in Indiana ever sentenced to prison as an adult. Every day I just think, if I just would have, you know, like, just done one thing different. I mean, it's a waste of time to do that. An accused killer, now 16 years old, has been certified to stand trial as an adult. I mean, there was a lawyer who made some video where they said, you know, my client had a young black client, so that my client would like to be charged as a rich white woman. You know, if I had a client and I was a lawyer, which I'm not, but everybody thinks I am. If I had a client who was an adult, I would say I'd like my client to be charged as a child. How come it doesn't work both ways? Like, what the fuck are you talking about? Yeah. A child is a child. An adult is an adult. We know now the adolescent brain is still in control until you're in your mid-20s or around the time you're 25 is when you're rational decision-making powers actually kick in. But I'm not saying that that means if you're 23 and you go do something horrible, you should, you know, shouldn't be held to account in a way that's, you know, of course, there's got to be accountability, but you know, yeah, it gets to a point where it's right. like, well, there's accountability, and then there's just taking someone's life away because they made a stupid mistake, like we all do, as you said, as kids. Like that kid Travion Blount, who I was able to help, who got yeah. six life sentences when he was 15 years old. Mm. And granted, like I said, it was a serious crime. He carried a gun. I'm sure it was a terrible experience for the people that he robbed, but he didn't shoot anybody. And if he did, he still shouldn't spend the rest of his life in prison. Because he's 15. Ian Manuel, incredible, who has a book out now. It's just an incredible guy, an incredible friend, was 13 years old when he was sentenced to natural life in prison in the state of Florida. He was sentenced to die in prison as a 13-year-old child for a crime where he did carry a gun and the gun did go off. Who knows if he was even intending to shoot or not, but he and couple of other older kids had, had robbed a woman, I think of her phone on the street or something. And the gun had gone off and he had shot her in the face. Um, she was fortunately survived and with some surgeries was, was okay. And this woman went to the trial and begged the judge not to send him to prison to her everlasting credit. The victim in the crime said, look, he's a child. You know, whatever she said, I don't have the exact words, but she advocated for him and he was sentenced to life without parole as a 13 year old child. He came home after 26 years. Brian Stevenson got him out and in the process changed the law so the juveniles can no longer be sentenced to life. Children, I should say, 13, you're four years away from being nine for fuck's sakes. But yes, he he took that case all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court and, and they found that um, life sentences for juveniles were unconstitutional. Uh, first in non-homicide crimes and then later in homicide crimes as well. But, 
you know, in many cases, what they'll do then is they'll just sentence them to 75 years instead. Well, well that's exactly right. I mean, we cover a case, I don't know if you've heard of Evaristo Salas Jr., but um, young young guy, 15, was a, a char- charged and accused of murder. I mean, it's come out since he's been, you know, he's not been exonerated, he's still in prison. He's now 42. He was sentenced. The judge actually said, I would give you longer if I could, but I can only give you 30 years. He's about two years away from uh, from being released. But so he was how old? Thirteen. He was fifteen at the time of this this shooting. He was only um, arrested because a a snitch uh, apparently told the detective that uh, he admitted to it. And that snitch has since come out and said, "No, I actually lied. The detective made me bullshit that story because otherwise he was going to put me in prison." And it's also come out that the the partner of the guy that got shot also had the car cleaned four days oh, after boy. the four days after the the crime, um, and they were actually looking at her initially. Arrested this kid. 30 years in prison, he's now 42, still incarcerated. It's cra- And he, he was sent to prison, an adult prison at 15, and he had to fucking join a gang so he didn't get destroyed. It's yeah. mental. It's mental. So we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, Jason and I will discuss the case of Temujin Kenzu. I don't know that I could pick one, but Temujin is on the short list of the craziest cases. 
400 episodes of our podcast. What's the craziest case you've ever heard of? Um, there's a handful that stand out. And I'll just say that Temujin, I don't know that I could pick one, but Temujin is on the short list of the craziest cases of all. And the reason I say that, and Temujin was convicted of a murder that happened around nine in the morning when he was provably four to 500 miles away at the time. The They knew that he was indisputably in the place called Port Huron, Michigan, at two in the morning and again at noon when he was at his karate class. They had many, many witnesses that placed him, you know, far, far away. So we're telling the story at the moment, so we'll, we'll try and avoid any spoilers of such uh, of the insane theories around this case. But what blows my mind, Jason, is that in a lot of these cases, like Temujin's and many others, with glaringly obvious issues, how they managed to convince a jury of 12 people to come up with a unanimous decision of guilt in some of these cases. You, you do sit there and scratch your head and go, how could a jury have possibly bought this nonsense? But the problem is, one of the problems is, is that people watch these TV shows. You know, They watch Law & Order, they watch CSI, they watch Cops, they watch these shows, and they get this... this crazy notion that everything's hunky fucking dory and that everyone's doing their level best and if somebody's up there in a suit uh or wearing a badge uh or you know in a lab coat or is a pilot or this that they're up there they must be telling the truth they put their hand on the bible and swore to tell the truth yeah, yeah, yeah. right and so how could they possibly not be telling, you know, and it's all, it's so crazy how gullible people become. And that's really one of the reasons why I started the wrongful conviction podcast is because I wanted to shine a light on these individual human stories like Tamajin so that look, ultimately pressure breaks pipes in a lot of cases. And yeah. we've had the great good fortune of being able to help free quite a number of people whose cases we've highlighted on the podcast. Vincent Simmons and Ronnie Long and Lamont McIntyre and others have come home, uh, at least in part because of the exposure we've been able to bring. And now, of course, Leo Schofield, who's the subject of the yep. Bone Valley podcast, which one was the most awarded podcast at the Ambi Awards last year. And Bone Valley is a full season on a case in Florida where this guy's been in just as long as Temujin and is as obviously innocent as he is. And on our show on Bone Valley, the actual killer confesses in details that only he could know. They were never made public. But still not but, released. I mean, he was obviously, you know, the, the parole board, you know, gave him a, a, a nice, not nice place, but they put him in a minimum security and all that sort of stuff. And he's probably going to be out, what, in about 12 months, maybe? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's still not enough out, to so. release him, even with a, a confession from someone else. I mean... <laughs> no, and and fingerprints in the car that she was murdered in of the actual killer, who actually we proved, proved killed three, at least three other people in that same area around that same time. So, yeah, but that's it. I mean, they in this country, you know, we have an adversarial system. I don't know how it works in Australia. Probably the same. But an adversarial system, meaning that everybody's trying to win. Right now, the defense is always trying to win because the defender's job, even if you believe your client is guilty, yeah. it's your job is to defend them to the best of your ability. But the prosecutor's job is to seek justice. And instead, what's happened is this country has gone to a place where they seek wins. And there are all sorts of reasons for that, including just blind ambition. And so, you know, as a friend of mine who's a, you know, four decades of criminal defense work in California. And he said to me, sometimes in his closing arguments, he'll say to the jury, you know, when that prosecutor goes back to their office at the after the closing arguments of this trial, and after you render your judgment, no one at his office is going to say, did you get justice? They're going to say, did you win? Yeah. 
And that's what it's become. And so what we should have is an inquisitorial system where we all are looking for the truth. Because when we convict the wrong person, as in Temujin's case, the person, this is a very real crime, right? I mean, a lot of people are convicted of crimes that never happened, but, and, and I can explain that, but in Temujin's case, it's a very real crime with a very real victim and a, and a grieving family, and the whole thing never should have happened. But whoever did it got away with it by yeah. virtue of the fact that the authorities decided to prosecute and persecute and torture, actually, Temujin, then known as Fred Freeman, for a crime that they had to know. Now, he, not only he didn't commit, but he couldn't have committed. And so it's extraordinary because you all heard his voice earlier on. It's amazing that he has two brain cells left to mm. rub together. You know, yeah. it's like, but yet he has this incredibly positive attitude. You know, Temujin's a guy who I'm always excited to hear from and, and always amazed by because almost every conversation with him starts off with, hey, how are you doing? Is there yeah. anything I can do to help you? Yeah. I'm like, I'm like, this is backwards, dude. Mm. Like... But that's the type of guy he is. I, I think we could probably count on one hand the number of friends we all have who would start a conversation or even bring up in a conversation. Like everyone's pretty much, they, people are mostly selfish, right? And that's, I'm not condemning anybody for that. Everyone's got their thing and they're busy and they're doing anything, you know, and everybody's out for the best life that they can have. And that's fine. But Temujin somehow has this extra gear where he's concerned about helping other people and everybody else's well-being in spite of the fact that he's in a situation that is, you know, one of the worst prisons in America. It's crazy that while we're having this conversation now um, within the comforts of our respective, you know, studios, homes where we can get up and mm. go get something to eat, mm. you know, go play with the dog, go for a walk, do whatever we want. And he's in a cell where he can reach both arms out and touch the walls. It's steel and concrete. There were quite a number of people murdered in the recent months and years in the prison that he's in. Yeah. And he's, you know, being denied medical care for a very, very serious condition that he has. It's just nuts. I mean, there's so many people like that. Like in America, medical care in prison often consists of a Tylenol. You could have a broken limb, you could have a, you know, a life-threatening condition, and they'll basically give you Tylenol. I mean, not in every case, but in many cases. You could wait for a year for a dental procedure. And again, I got to go back to that. Here we sit, having this conversation, and there he is. Like, if we had a split screen, I wish your audience could see what that looks like in America. The state of the prisons here, uh, by and large, is just unbelievably terrible. And... It's it's soul killing, but yet this guy who was just a regular guy, you know, is somehow or other there, like chipper, optimistic, yeah. excited to speak, you know, not not feeling sorry for himself. It's amazing. So I think to wrap up this rant, being in contact with people like Temujin puts gratitude in my attitude yeah. because of the fact that if his if he's not going to be sitting there dwelling on his problems, then I probably shouldn't dwell on mine either. Yeah. And it's so true. I mean, there's so many people. I like to, you know, every so Silas Jr., a bloke who's been incarcerated since he was 15. I love chatting with him on the phone. He is so positive. Like I always say to these these people, I'm like, you know, you're so positive. Your outlook is so, you know, you know, the things will work out. It'll sort itself out sort of situation. And I just don't feel like I could be the same. Yeah, they're like, you know, and they, and, you know, Everisa says to me, I said, I had to make a decision years ago. I either sit here and stew on this 
because and the only person that's going to affect is me or I focus on the positive side of things and getting my life right. And, you know, the biggest thing I've noticed is these in, in the darkest of points where they are in their life, positivity. As you said, Temujin, so positive. You know, so we spoke for four hours and I'm like, I could speak to you for another four because, you know, his outlook on things and his positivity and that sort of stuff. Is it's just mind blowing. Couldn't agree with you more. I go to death row and I've had a similar conversation for four hours on that horrible phone through the bulletproof glass with a guy named Rob Will, who we interviewed on my show, who's innocent um, and sentenced to death in Texas. And, you know, just incredible, brilliant, you know, thoughtful, kind, gentle soul who's a brilliant painter and artist and 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 poet and and so knowledgeable about so many things and just it's sick that he's there. And I'll just say this to, to wrap up that segment of our conversation. And I know we have limited time, but the um, as well as I've ever heard it said, the principle that we're discussing right now, uh, there's a guy named John Huffington on the Wrongful Conviction Podcast. He was sentenced to death, a double death sentence in uh, Maryland, because again, like w- what if he dies and comes back yeah, to life, course. I suppose. But anyway, to be sure. So he had two death sentences. And served 32 years in prison there. I was at a uh, an event uh, for a great organization called the Southern Center for Human Rights, and I was uh, an honoree on that particular night. And I was speaking from the stage, and John was there, um, so I shouted him out and told a little bit of his story. And if you meet John, he's six foot four, square jawed guy, always wears a suit. You know, you would never imagine that he had been through this incredible ordeal. Uh, and it, it stands up, you know, ramrod straight, you know. And so he, uh, we're speaking afterwards, and someone from the audience uh, comes up, one of the attendees comes up and says to him, "Man, sort of ignore." They sort of ignore me and go like to beeline to him, and understandably, and he said, "Man, I don't understand something. How come you're not angry? You don't seem angry. I'd be so bitter. I'd be so mad. I'd be out like looking for the people that did this to me, that framed me. I'd go get those people. I'd make their." You know, whatever the hell they were saying. And John looks him in the eye and says, man, that's why the rear view mirror is small, but the windshield big. <laughs> and I was like, fuck <laughs> me. This guy is yeah, like, what am I going to say about yeah, that? So, yeah, I, I think we can all take something from that. I hope we can. Congrats on, on everything you've done. And uh, I really appreciate your time, mate. Got it. Talk to you soon. Of course, a huge thank you to Jason Flom for giving up his valuable time to join me here on OMR. And of course, make sure you go and check out, if you haven't already, his show, The Wrongful Conviction Podcast, the link to which I've put in the show notes of this episode. One Minute Remaining is a Mash Pumpkin production. Produced, hosted and created by Jack Lawrence. Editing and sound design by Jack Lawrence and Dom Evans. This show is part of the ACAST Creator Network. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.